Hi, I'm Mark Gagliardi from We Got This with Mark and Hal, and you're listening to a great, big, beautiful podcast. very optimistic. I think I think what gets in the way is panic, is people freaking out and not doing due diligence and and having knee-jerk reactions. And also I think because we do that, we don't address the fundamental problems. And the moderates, the people who know better, they don't speak up. And that's a huge danger. When the people who know better don't speak up, they allow the liars and the fear merchants and the dictators to take over. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. This is the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at the GBB Podcast. You can find us in any app store that has podcasts. And you can find us right here because you're listening to us. I don't know where you got us. We're here, though. Party in your party. In yeah, your like you say that every week. You s- you say that every week, like you can find us here, you can find us there, but like obviously they've already found us, like they're listening to us. <laughs> so true. I don't think they need us to tell them like where to find us because they found us. Me exactly, yeah. Just okay, it's redundant, isn't it? I never thought of that before. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm gonna stop saying that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could you you know you could keep saying it, but like tell your friends that this is where yes. you can find us. People who haven't found us yet. <laughs> yes. Do you have friends that would enjoy? Our interviews, go tell them. That's who matters. <laughs> All right. So, Jamie. And however you found us, that's how you can tell them to find us too. Exactly. <laughs> so, Jamie, you had a solo interview this week with the one and only Max Brooks. Tell us about it. Was it everything you hoped and dreamed? Everything I hoped and dreamed it would ever be. I have been trying to get Max on the show for a while, and it's just one thing after another just wasn't going to happen. And then finally it did. So yay. If you are not familiar with Max, he has written World War Z, um, and he wrote a f- several other um, novels that are are in the zombie genre. Um, and he's sort of become a, a defining voice of that genre. Um, and uh, he has sort of dove headfirst into into zombies but he the way he writes about zombies and like zombie apocalypse it's really metaphorical i mean i guess it always is because zombies aren't real spoiler alert <laughs> what but what? uh i mean like i know i know i'm sorry i'm sorry i hate to break it to you <laughs> um but he he writes about it from the perspective of like disaster preparedness like a zombie apocalypse is really just a stand-in for um, nuclear a, a nuclear war or famine or um, you know something that would that would radically change the status quo. So if we were to wake up tomorrow and the world as we know it has been turned on its head, um, and we there's like what we rely on today without even thinking about it is no longer reliable. 
how would humanity react mm-hmm. and how would we adapt and how long would it take us to adapt? Um, and so that's sort of the the angle he comes at it from. What I found really interesting is that he does a lot of work with the military. Uh, he's a he's a fellow with the Modern War Institute right now. Uh, and he does a, he has a lot of speaking engagements with different, um, military organizations and he does a lot of research with them. And that's the angle he takes. Like what, how to be prepared for that which we think is, is unpreparable. You know, like it's like something that like, like something that we couldn't prepare for. What do we do if that really does happen? You know, like what happened? And, and today it seems doesn't seem as far fetched as it might have just a few years ago. You know, I mean, like we're dancing on the edge of nuclear apocalypse. You know, it's like that might sound like hyperbole, but it really kind of isn't. Um, so if, you know, the unthinkable were to happen, you know, what then? Like, where do we go from there? And so that in his fiction, that's. That's really what he talks about. Like he uses zombies as the entryway, like as the as that the touchstone that the pop cultural touchstone that people can can relate to. Like, all right, zombies, I get it. They're the Walking Dead, they're the shambling undead. You know, I I get that. I know what they are. Instead of just writing about you know like how can humanity adapt after the nuclear apocalypse, which is a little bit drier and maybe maybe won't be as entertaining. Um, but. Uh, yeah, so that 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 to me is more fascinating than, um, you know, just writing about zombies or just writing about like, wow, hey, yes. look at you know, like like The Walking Dead. Well, it's like re- I, I I am I am. Go ahead. Uh, it's a very real situation. Um, for example, a few mo- a couple months ago, if you'll remember, Jamie, um, all of our cell phones here in Atlantic Canada went out. I don't know if you remember me tweeting about that, or Facebooking about it, but. All of the cell phones on a certain network were just completely gone. Internet connections, bank machines, everything gone. And it was for the majority of a day. And it was just a day and people were, had no idea what to do. You know, nobody could get money out. Freaking out, People couldn't buy groceries. It was insane. And so can you imagine, you know, like what you were saying, you'd be prepared for, you know, if the internet went out for good, that'd be a very real problem. (laughs) If there was a disruption like that. I think about like, like we have a thunderstorm and the power goes out for like an hour. I'm like, oh my god, I don't know what to do. You know, like I've lost the internet and I sit around like, what am I? I, I have a house full of books and like games and 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 things to do and kids and imagination. But like, if I'm without the internet for an hour, like I feel so helpless. Like like I feel like I'm just kind of floundering. Like oh my god, I'm so disconnected. So yeah, I. I can't even imagine, like, if it were just to, like, go down for good, you know? Like, what the rest of the world would do. Like, how people would react. It's not It's not something I want to think about, but luckily we have Max Brooks. We have Max. So, yes, yeah, so like we that. talk about that. We talk about a lot of stuff. Um, and uh, if you are unfamiliar with Max as a person, if you only know him through World War Z, which a lot of people do... Um, he he is the son of Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft, so he has um, famous parents. So he's he grew up in that in that world. Um, we don't really talk about that very much. I mean, we we mention it obviously. You know, it's 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 who he is and where it, it's where he comes from. So it kind of defines him. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not something that we dwelled on. But it is. I, I wanted to put it out there for people who didn't know because I I mention. 
I don't think I ever mentioned his parents by name, but I did mention, you know, your parents as in like people should have known who that is. So if you don't know, that's what my, my reference was toward. All right. So we are going to go play that interview for you right now. Hope you enjoy. Max, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It's a pleasure to have you. My pleasure to be here. Um, I wanted to go back. Um, this is probably a question you've answered a number of times, but humor me. Um, what first puts you on the road to, to writing and storytelling? Is there an aha moment that you can look back at and say like, oh, that was it. That was the moment that changed my life. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I think it was when I saw a couple of my friends when I was about 12 years old writing short stories on their own uh, just for fun. And yeah. I didn't know you could do that. And I thought I'd give it a try. I was on vacation with my parents in Europe and they were, we were on the beach somewhere and they had one of those sort of big cabanas that had a back room for changing. And so I went in the back room with some uh, hotel stationery and I started writing a short story and time stopped for three days. <laughs> and when you're OCD and you're either living in the past or the future or in your head to be a hundred percent focused yeah. for three days is, is just, it's unheard of. Sure. And that was the aha moment. Do you remember what that story was? Oh, I'm sure it was a version of, of the 18, something like that. <laughs> probably some, uh, probably some Stephen J. Canal or maybe some uh, Golan Globus 1980s action story. Yeah. Your parents didn't keep it? Uh, it's it's around here somewhere. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it's it's probably in my in my late mother's uh probably somewhere in in the chests of yeah. of papers that she's kept. Oh, that's amazing. Um I mean, you, you talk about your parents who are obviously they're they're well known, they're creative. Did you go through when you were younger? Did you go through a period of rebellion where where you decided you wanted to do anything except pursue a creative career? Like that that was not going to be for you. No, I always knew that's what I wanted to do. I mean, I think my rebellion my rebellion was was not adolescent. It was substantive and it came later when I basically had to confront my mom and tell her I just did not want to be an actor. Mm. Uh I just I didn't enjoy it, and I I didn't get the rush from the doing, and I didn't enjoy the process, and I I didn't have the bug, I didn't have that that sort of inherent drive, which is critical yeah. when it comes to any sort of artistic endeavor. Yeah. How did she take that? I think it was I think it was hard on her. I think she accepted it like a good parent, but I think it was it was hard on her knowing that I I simply just didn't. I didn't have the desire to follow in her footsteps when it came to acting. Yeah. Yeah. Was your dad of the same mind? Did he also want you to go into that? Was he somehow, you know, like a little bit upset that you decided against well, it? I, no, no. I, I think, I think as a dad, I think he was much more practical. Yeah. I think as a dad, he was just happy that I was going to have a job. <laughs> I don't know though. You know, writing is not a guaranteed job. No, it's it's true, but I think when once I started to make money on writing, I think uh, yeah, and not asking him to help out, I think he he was happy. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And did your did your mom come around? You know, and she finally you know said, oh, you know what, I I think you got a knack for this. Well, no, she was always supportive of my writing ever since I was a little boy. I think I think it was the the giving up of the acting that was hard for her. Yeah, and she eventually did come around to it. Okay. Um, 
I, I think it's fair to say that uh, in terms of your writing, you're, you're most well known probably for your zombie stories. Um, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I was wondering how the shift was creatively um, to writing a book that was aimed at younger readers and that was based in the Minecraft world, which is sort of an existing franchise that you were you were diving into. Well, you know, I think uh, for me it wasn't a shift at all because I didn't write for a younger audience. I wrote for me, mm-hmm. and that's sort of always been how I write. I never write for an audience simply because uh, I don't know what an audience wants. Right. Uh, I, I've never been very good at anticipating uh, that part of the process. And so what I've always done from day one is always write for me and and let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. How familiar with the game were you before taking on the project? Uh, hugely. I yeah. mean, that's why I took on the project. I, okay. would, I would never have have agreed to write that book if I wasn't already a massive fan of the game. Uh, I started playing with my son, and then I started uh, by myself, and, and I realized that this, was, th- this wasn't just a game. This was a guide to life. Mm-hmm. I mean, if played correctly, mm-hmm. if, if seen through the right lens, this game could do, could do wonders for teaching young people basically how to survive the real world. And, and I became sort of a devotee. I became a disciple. Uh, and so when I was approached to write a Minecraft book, I... I jumped right on that yeah um it's funny because you know you mentioned this but at its core the book minecraft the island is it's still about survival and how to prepare for and adapt to this major unexpected change which is at the core of many of your other books and it's a familiar theme to your writing um but again even though you weren't writing necessarily for children or for younger readers, that's how the book is going to be marketed. So is that something that you think is important for kids to learn? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I, I think that the book itself is, like you said, very much in the, in the theme of everything else I've ever written. I mean, I write survival stories pretty much, and mm-hmm. this is just another survival story, only this time the zombies are square. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little less blood. <laughs> yeah. Um, what was there a temptation though? I mean, d- despite writing for yourself, was there a temptation to to want to skew the story maybe a little bit more mature to 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 write a more adult book set in the Minecraft world? No, no, no. I, I like I said, I wrote the kind of book that I would want to read. Yeah. And and that has always been uh, sort of what I've you know what I've tried to do. Um. And so I, I, never, I never tried to imagine what an audience would like, where they would go, because you go down that road, uh, there's no way out of that. Sure. And, and if, I, if I even for a second try to pre what a reader would enjoy when I start writing from the point of view of the consumer instead of the, the creator, then I'm, I'm dead and gone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's fascinating to me about this book is the audio version um, and that you it incorporates that, you know, I guess, quote unquote, player mentality into the production in a way that hasn't I, I haven't seen before um, that there are two versions of the book, one, you know, Jack Black and one by Samira Wiley. So you have a male or a female performer and listeners can choose which one they would prefer. And that's very much 
driven by a game. That's a game mechanic. You know, you choose your avatar. Um, I'm just wondering what led to that decision. Well, that was because Mojang, the, the company Mojang, was very clear that they wanted the character to be genderless. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have a problem with it because when you're writing about a solitary character alone on an island, they're not really referring to their gender all the time. So it really didn't affect the writing of the book much. Uh, but when it got to doing an audiobook, there was no way to hide that. Uh, you're going to have a voice, and that voice is going right. to have a gender. Right. And people are going to know. So we came up with the idea of doing two different narrators. Like you said, like a game where right. you can choose your avatar. And so when it got to choosing a female, I wasn't really sure. I didn't know who. And then my wife said, well, you really like Mira Wiley's work, which I do. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that she would be perfect. And and with Jack Black, I cheated because we went to high school together. <laughs> That's It's okay. That's a fair cheat, I think. <laughs> Did- I think so. But but I had, I had a, as, a, as a parent... I had a wonderful teaching moment with my son who loves Jack Black, you know, loves Kung Fu Panda. Mm-hmm. And we went into the booth to, to watch Jack work and Jack was having a rough time. You yeah. know, Jack was, Jack was working hard in, in his own words. Uh, he's a little bit dyslexic and his tongue is too big for his mouth. <laughs> and what was wonderful about it was to prove to my son that talent only gets you so far that there, there is no, way around just discipline and hard work and no matter how much fun it looks like at the end of it this is still a job right and i think that's i mean that's an incredible val- incredibly valuable lesson i think to learn too when you're young you know if if you're surrounded by success or if you see you know the results of success so often you kind of forget that it's a long slog to get there you know it's a lot of work to get to that success and nobody's ever handed it and uh, I, I think with audiobooks, people kind of. Unf- I love audiobooks. I love audiobook performance. I think it's an art. Um, but I, I think the tendency is to kind of like poo poo it. You know, be like, oh, they're just actors reading a book. There's, there's really no thought yeah. that goes into that. But it's the, the opposite is, is, is the truth. And I mean, I think that's it's such an important lesson no, that's to exa- learn. That, that's exactly right. I, and, and I think that, that, is, that tends to be the problem with any sort of art form is you, you see the finished work mm-hmm. and you rarely see the work that goes behind it. And you know, I do a lot of comic book conventions and I'm always asked sort of what would, if I could have a superpower, what would it be? And I think my superpower would be to, to be able to find every single writer who does a public interview and tells uh, listeners or readers that it just flowed. It yeah. just flowed. I just sat down and it just happened. And then to be able to find those people and punch them in the face <laughs> because they're lying. Yeah. Doesn't ever happen. Yeah. You, it can flow in your first draft, but it doesn't matter how much it flows. You still have to revise. You mm-hmm. have to rewrite, you have to edit. And that's a lot of work. Right. And I think when you get accomplished writers talking about how it just flowed, that discourages aspiring writers who mm-hmm. sit down to write, and then they think, well, this isn't flowing. I must not be talented. I'm not meant to be a writer. Right. It, it, one of the things, you know, piggybacking off of that, one of the things that I often hear, and I think 
people say it and they mean it to be inspirational or they mean it to be, you know, like this, this will help you. It helped me, but I often find it to be, um, more of a, more of a, more of a crutch or more of a, you know, it's not helpful is that, um, when they say like, Oh, the, the, the characters just took the story and ran with it. And it just, it just came out, you know, like I didn't know where the story was going to go. The character spoke to me and they finished the story for me. And like, okay, great. That sounds nice. But you know, as a writer who's sitting down, if I'm ha- if I'm struggling with a story and I'm struggling with characterization or a plot point, that doesn't help me, and that that discourages me because I'm thinking, well, what am I doing wrong? Because these characters aren't talking to me. Yeah, and that and that's exactly right. And and I can't stand when I when I hear writers talk about that about how oh it just wrote itself. Yeah. Uh, because because that's almost never true. And yeah. and even when write itself. Uh, you you don't just publish that because then that would literally be full of typos. Yeah. Uh, you, you still have to work at it. And I don't know any writer that hasn't struggled. Yeah. And, and maybe some projects are easier than others and that, and that's very valid. You know, some projects that I write, it's a lot easier. Uh, the creativity part is a lot easier, but some part, but then the next project right after that, a lot harder. Mm-hmm. And and I think too many people confuse art with not working. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what you're doing; it it is a job. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point because. Yeah, a lot of people look at authors or artists or actors and they think they're like, oh, that's so easy. They just sit down and they do what I would love to do if I had the time, but I actually have to work. And they don't quite see right. what those people do as work, you know, that all of the hard work and energy and skill that goes into that. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, when I was a kid in the 80s, there was that great song by Dire Straits, you know, Money for Nothing. Sure. And I think what was what was great about the way I grew up was I got to see a lot of creative artistic people, but I got to see behind the scenes and I got to see a lot of these people working just dog hours. Uh, and also for no guarantee, you know, these are people who could work 12, 12 hour days, 13, 14 hour days, uh, for a whole year. And at the end of it, nobody cares. Nobody wants what they're selling and it could all be a disaster or they could, grind it out and then a critic comes along and then urinates all over it like in history of the world part one mm. uh so so i i think what was what was important to seeing these creative people was to see what went into it yeah. and and it, and it didn't matter how brilliant you were how much god-given talent you had <clears throat> you still had to get up every day and get to work yeah yeah um Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but I I read that you know when World War Z was first being made into the film, you did not want to write the screenplay because you didn't think that you had enough experience doing that. Is that true? Uh, kind of, but I also think it was kind of mutual. I mean, they didn't ask. Okay. You know, I mean, even <clears throat> even if I had wanted to, uh, I I, it's not like they were banging down my door for me to write the script. Yeah. Um. Are you are you involved with the sequel? You are writing the screenplay. No, no, no. no. I have no idea what's going on. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I then the internet has lied to me again. Are you serious? <laughs> I know. I know. It's a shocker. <laughs> um, so let's talk zombies for a few minutes. I mean, zombie fiction 
has been popular for a long time. You, you, you kind of yeah. blew, it kind of blew up with you, and it became this subgenre that that just exploded in popularity. Why, though, do you think we are so obsessed with this with this idea? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I can only speak for myself. Yeah, you know, I know, I know why I'm into it. Uh, I mean, if I was going to venture a guess, I think it's just because we're living in such uncertain times. And I think that people have a lot of anxieties yeah. about change. And um, and I think that people need a place to put it. And I think that, um, you know, zombies are a great way to challenge those apocalyptic anxieties because it, it gives you a slight, I like to say, a psychological condom mm-hmm. from from the, the real stuff, the, the scary stuff. You know, you can tell a story of a city completely imploding, uh, of services not working, of neighbors turning on each other, of uh, essential supplies running short. But if the catalyst for all this is fictional, like zombies, then you can watch it. Then it's not too real. Your ego defense mechanism doesn't kick in. You don't go, oh, God, this is too scary. I'm not going to watch it. Right. There's, I mean, you mentioned this this just now. I mean, there's a lot of paranoia about where we're heading as a society, where we're going, where we're moving toward as a species. If tomorrow morning, I'm not saying it's going to be a zombie apocalypse, but if yeah. if the world turned on its head, you know, like in, in, in your book, zombies are just a metaphor for anything that could happen. If the world turned on its head, if the rules no longer applied, do you th- honestly, do you think that we would be ready for that? Uh, yeah. No, I do. I do. I, I, I don't think we, when you say ready, like, will we be ready on day one? Oh, God, no. Yeah. No, 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 especially in this country. This country, we, uh, certainly since 9-11, we've had this, this ridiculous pendulum swing between total denial and total panic. Yeah. And the pendulum just keeps swinging back and forth, where suddenly we freak out as a nation, we, or we don't care. Right. Uh, but I think when our backs are against the wall, we as a species will adapt. I mean, I think, of course, that's, that is definitely our greatest ability as a species. We're not particularly strong. We're not particularly fast. We don't have claws. We don't have fangs, uh, but we are able to change. Yeah. You know, we are able to take a stick and put a sharpened stone on the end of it, or we're able to harness fire. We're able to develop language. We're able to develop communities. So, yeah, we, we can adapt. Uh, that being said, there will be casualties. Sure. What, I mean, what can we do today to minimize those casualties, though? I mean, whether it's a zombie apocalypse oh. or it's an earthquake or it's a nuclear war, like, what can we do to be more ready on day one than we might otherwise be? Oh, well, that's, well, okay, well, number one is you have to you have to be able to root out the actual facts from the merchants of fear. And this is a problem. I think, you know, uh, the great irony is that even though there's such apocalyptic anxiety now gripping this country, mm-hmm. we're actually doing great. I mean, statistically, the human race has never been in a better position. Yeah. Hunger, poverty, violence, disease, uh we're closer to utopia than we've ever been, and yet people think everything's falling apart. Right. Because we have the merchants of fear who are constantly trying to sell us fear 
in the media, so we will tune in and freak out, and so we'll keep tuning in. Yeah. And you got to tune them out, and you got to listen to real experts, and that means choosing reputable newspapers over, say, Facebook. <laughs> uh, that means confronting friends who don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. Uh, you know, that means also uh, taking part in our system, in our democracy. You know, this is this is the problem in this country is that democracy comes with a lot of homework. We are the boss. You know, you don't get to blame the government in this country. You can do that in China, Russia, Iran, because the government's separate from the people. We are the people. We are the government. So you don't you don't get to sit back and say, oh, these politicians. Well, we put them there and we can take them out. And if you don't like the way the system's running, then get off your ass and vote and put in the people that you want and take responsibility for them, because that's what it means to be a citizen. Man, here, here. I wish more people would realize that, though. I mean, that with everything that's happening, you know, today especially too, it's like like people like that. Those merchants of fear are working overtime. You know, I mean, it's they oh, yeah. it, sometimes it's, they're making it's, a lot of money with that. Yeah, and it's disheartening for somebody like me who maybe doesn't have as loud a voice as somebody like you might, or somebody you know in the media might. It's frustrating and disheartening because you see all of the the mechanisms that they have in their tilting the odds in their favor these you know the fear-mongering and it's sometimes you know you just sit back and think well god what can i do i mean i can vote and i can raise my voice but really does that matter it it does matter because all you have to do is your part you know and i think this is i think unfortunately this is the problem with uh, with stories sometimes you know from star wars to harry potter to game of thrones there's all this emphasis on like the born special people, the mm-hmm. chosen ones. Mm-hmm. And that's not how America's set up. America's set up where all you got to do is your part. You know, you've got the icon of like Tom Hanks and Private Ryan, you know, the citizen soldier. All you got to do is your part. <clears throat> I mean, and I see that every day and I see people doing wonderful things where I once had uh, an idiot, idiot friend on Facebook post an article about the Russians feeding people in Aleppo. Why don't we do that? Well, I clicked on her link, Mm -hmm. which then took me to another link, which then took me to Bashar al-Assad's own website. (laughs) So I called her out and said, you are, you need to be very careful about articles that you post on Facebook because you are now doing the work of a dictator. Now, but that's but I'm not the hero of the story. The hero of that story is someone else on Facebook who saw her article, and when she said, "Why don't we do that?" he he posted, "We actually do." Mm-hmm. And he went and posted the USAID website and showed at which the United States State Department has a list of all the countries of the world that we send aid to. And so those are the facts. And that's how you win yeah. is when and it takes it takes individual acts where when someone posts propaganda or lies, you post the truth. And that's all you've got to do. And if everybody did that, we would be in an amazing place right now. Yeah. Um, you know, also, for your part, you've you know, you've, you've taken a, a fellowship position at the Modern War Institute. Um, I'm just curious what prompted you to take that role. 
they asked me. Yeah. You know, it's uh, all the work I do with the military is them coming to me. It's not like I'm cold calling the Pentagon. <laughs> um, you know, I have great ideas. You could though. Um, <laughs> I don't think I'd get very far. <laughs> uh, no, what happened was uh, many years ago, World War Z got on the reading list of the Naval War College, so I was invited to speak, and that got me further speaking engagements. And I kept getting invited to these military forums. And I then got a fellowship at uh, the Atlantic Council, and then I was asked to speak at a strategic studies group, and someone in that group heard me talk and then invited me to come to this this new startup organization called the Modern War Institute, and, and that's how I got there. Um I'm just one curious, based on that work, you know, work with the Modern War Institute and all the research, because I know you are a huge researcher, um, not just with your writing, but with your speaking and everything. Um, with all of your research and your work and your speaking and the conversations that you've had, um, zombie survival is just disaster preparedness. So based on everything yeah. that you know, what is the greatest threat facing humanity as a whole right now? Honestly, it's just panic. Yeah. That's that's all it is. I mean, it's not, you know, there are very few problems that we can't solve other than asteroid colliding with Earth, uh, you know, or something like that. There's very few problems that we are facing that we can't solve, and we have solved them. I mean, if you look at any of the issues that, ha that have literally and figuratively plagued us, we have solved them, and we can continue to solve them. I mean, literally, the fact that that you can choose to have uh, a certain amount of children, and you're pretty sure that those children will live to adulthood, uh, is because humanity has gotten together and created things like clean water and sanitation and sewage and hospitals and vaccines. Uh, and therefore, you don't have to name your children after you twice. So one of them will live to right. guarantee the family name will continue. <laughs> I mean, I am very optimistic. I think, I think what gets in the way is panic. I think what gets in the way is people freaking out and not doing due diligence and, and having knee jerk reactions. Yeah. I think, I think these, these are the problems that have always gotten us uh, into trouble. And also, I think because we do that, we don't address the fundamental problems. And the moderates, the people who know better, they don't speak up. And that's a huge danger. When the people who know better don't speak up, they allow the liars and the fear merchants and the dictators to take over. So, okay. So in the last couple of minutes, because I know we've only got you for a couple more minutes, I want to shift gears, maybe hopefully something happier. <laughs> So we could end on an upbeat. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, no, look, I'm, I'm, look, I'm very. I want to say, look, I am very upbeat. I'm yeah. Very optimistic. Yeah. And I really am. I mean, I think that I think that as a historian or or someone who's always loved history, you look at where we are as a species to where we we are now, and once again, we're in an amazing place right now, yeah. and we can continue to move forward. It's up to us. Yeah, just don't give in to the panic and the fear. That it it's yeah. e easy to say, but it does consume people very quickly. Um, okay, leaving that behind, though, um, would you say that fatherhood has affected your career at all? I mean, has has it informed what you choose to write about or how you how you write about those topics? 
Oh, yeah, always. Always. Yeah. Um, I mean, fatherhood has removed any sort of choice about whether I can be pessimistic or optimistic. Because hmm. it's not about me anymore. You know, my child did not choose to be born. Uh, so I owe him everything, including a positive attitude. I can't afford to be cynical or, or dark. Yeah. Uh, I have to be positive. I have to write about positive things. I have to have uh, informative messages and everything I write for him because I don't have a choice anymore mm-hmm. because I'm now responsible for his future. You know, I was just at a at a national security, uh, global security conference in Singapore, and there was this one sort of British professor there. And he was <laughs> old and fat, and he was sort of melting into his chair on the stage. And he said, well, I'm a pessimist. I believe everything's going to be like Game of Thrones. Uh. And I wanted to say to him, then get your fat ass off the stage, dude. <laughs> because those of us who have kids, we don't have time for your bullshit anymore. Yeah. We're trying to make a better world. The world needs to and be there for them. We, yeah, the world needs to be there for them. We don't have time for that kind of, of cynicism anymore. If that's what you really believe, then go back to your dusty little office on your soggy little island and get the <laughs> hell out of our way. Uh, would you say that that, you know, that, that need to be optimistic, is that the most important thing you've learned about being a father since becoming one? Well, I, I, I think the, the most important thing about being a father is, is you can never stop. Yeah. You know, the, there's that great, remember that great scene in, in uh, Parenthood when Jason Robards, he says to, uh, he says to Steve Martin, he says it never ends. Yeah. He says, there is never that one moment where everything is okay. You're always trying. You're always working and fighting. It never, ever ends. And it's true because your child is always changing and, and their needs are always changing and the questions are always changing. And so you're always striving to find new answers. And, and sometimes and this is really hard for our generation because we want to be perfect parents. Exactly. You know, so many Gen Xers, you know, we, we're always whining about these soft, precious millennials, but we created them, you know, because we didn't want to be, we didn't want them to feel abandoned the way Gen Xers were abandoned by baby boomers. Yeah. And, and sometimes I find the hardest part of parenting is knowing whether to, when to back off and yeah. let them fail. You know, let my part. son fail. Yeah. It is the hardest part. Yeah. And that and that's on us. The hardest part I find as a parent is knowing when to just take a step back and let my son fall on his face yeah. and let him learn some really harsh lessons because I'm not always going to be there for him. And the worst thing I can do as a parent is to give him the, the false assumption that someone around him is always going to be there to clean up his mess. Mm-hmm. And that's not fair to him. Yeah. And and teaching teaching him to teach himself is the toughest journey uh that I have found as a, as a parent. Yeah. I 100% agree. We're we're entering that now with my kids. My oldest is only 8, so she's a little bit younger than yours, I think, but she's entering that period now where it's like, well, we got to let her just 
make those decisions. And if they're the wrong ones for her, then she's going to learn. And yeah. I think back to all the stupid things that I did when I was a kid. And I, I, you know, I have a newfound respect for my own parents for letting me make those dumb choices. Oh my God. Oh, you have to. And, and it kills you as a parent. Yeah. And I find that, I find that the fragileness of millennials is directly due to the, the selfish narcissism of Gen Xers because they don't want to feel bad. You know, we don't want to feel bad. We don't want to feel like bad parents, but it's not about us. You know, it's about them. And the best thing we can do for them is to, like, give them all the advice we can, show them the choices, and then let them go out and fail and recover from failure on their own. So then they can look back and be like, hey, you know what? I I got in a real jam and nobody got me out of it but me. And my God, if we could teach them that kind of resilience. Yeah then they're going to be okay long after we're dead and gone. Yeah. Max, I know we've come up to the end of our time. So thank you so much for the, I mean, this has just been a fantastic conversation. I could just keep talking to you forever about this, but uh, <laughs> I, I really do appreciate your time. So thank you. Thanks, man. You take care. Of All right. So I have a very real hypothetical for you and we're going to pick through this quick. What do you think we would have a better chance of surviving if Skynet happened? Oh my god! Or if there was a zombie at- apocalypse? What do you think? What do you think we can survive easier? <laughs> um, probably the zombie apocalypse because, well, at least here in America, we got all them guns. You know, <laughs> and if, if if TV and movies have taught us anything, we can kill zombies. Um, not really sure we can kill Skynet. <laughs> I think I agree. Zombies don't seem to be as smart as the Terminator machines. No, no, <laughs> that were a real definitely thing. true. Definitely true. <laughs> and they don't an shoot back. <laughs> <laughs> so we we were talking a little bit before about uh, not talking to Max Brooks about his family and his parents, and we've had other guests on the show before where um, they had famous parents, i.e., uh, Joe Hill. <laughs> Okay. And I think that that's a very important thing that a lot of and this is, I know this has nothing to do with the interview, but um, I think it's an important thing because these guys have come up in their own right, and yeah, they do have famous parents, but their their parents aren't going to make their careers right. They they have to be able to do their own thing apart from it, and we don't want to be that guy that asks asks them the entire time about their parents. You know, so tell us that thing Stephen King did twenty years ago. You know, nobody cares. <laughs> Yeah, and I like like you said, like you know, people who have famous parents, um, it might be a foot in the door. I mean, we're not gonna lie; like it is a it is a it is a help. You know what I mean? Like it it's gonna be a foot in the door. But like, so if your dad is Stephen King, or if your dad right. is Mel Brooks, or if your dad is whomever, you know, it might help you get that first thing that you want to do done. Mm-hmm. But if that sucks and nobody buys it, you're not gonna get a second thing. You know, so for people who can build careers and build successful careers, that is due to their talent. That is not due to their parents. Um, So and I'm sure at the beginning of their careers, when that first thing first came out, that's probably every interview. That's everything they ever, ever did. That's all they had to hear, you know, was what about your parents and how much did that help? And what was so that what like? Your dad? So, what does your dad I mean, think that's of like, that book? <laughs> yeah. 
and that to me are just like those are so such uninteresting questions. Mm-hmm. And when we joke about it, the people that stand up at Comic Cons are like, "What was it like to work with Patrick Stewart?" <laughs> oh yeah, what was it like to work with like we, who was that? Um, uh, Frank said that right. We asked yes. him like, "What was the most common question he got?" And he yeah. was like, "What was it like to work with Patrick Stewart?" And you know, and it's like I don't think he said this, but I've heard this said before, like. What are they going to say? It was awful. The guy was an ass. You know, like you're even if even if like that's what they thought, you know, I'm not saying Patrick, Sir Patrick Stewart. I'm not saying he's an ass. I'm saying anybody, you know, like what was it like to work with Bobcat Goldthwait? You know what I mean? Like, even if you hate that person, you're not going to say that that person was terrible. So, you know, your answer like you're not going to get an honest answer. So why even bother asking? And that's what sets us apart from other podcast people. That's what sets us apart. (laughs) <laughs> That's what makes us better. Better. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming back every single week. If you don't come back every week, we invite you to join us. Hit the subscribe button and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at the GBB podcast. You can find me, Justin, at 140JustinC. You can find me at the Roarbots. And we'll see you next time right here on the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Take care. This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad.